Uh, every person, every single person has experienced times when we felt that justice is taking too long. Even children cry out because of injustice. Look at these questions that I received. Pastor Wayne, my teacher only likes girls. Boys are always assumed to be bad. Will I ever have a teacher who likes boys? The bully at school gets everyone to laugh at me, and he does it where the adults don't notice. Worst of all, no one stands up for me. When will I be big enough to stop it? Close quote. Every child has felt these kinds of unjust pains, right? They frustrate us. They hurt us. And life doesn't get more immediately just just because we age. Listen to this letter I received. Uh, Wayne, the judgment went our way again, but we still can't seem to collect a single dollar of the millions we are owed. The judge held the other company in contempt and said they must pay. But when? Judges speaking on our behalf is nice, but it doesn't pay the bills. I am so frustrated that I am crying out to God about my anger in all this. Sorry, I'm sure that's immature, close quote. Justice is taking too long. It hurts, but that person is doing the exact right thing. He's yelling to God about it. You see, far from being, far from being immature, crying out to God in anger and frustration is biblical. Job does it, David does it, and this prophet probably argues with God better than anybody. His name is Habakkuk, and he is the great biblical guide for how to handle life when it appears that justice is taking too long. Habakkuk asks three great questions, three great questions that every thinking person must eventually wrestle through. Question number one, is God God? Question number two, is he at work? Okay, so maybe he's God, but is he at work? And number three, if he's at work, is he working good? You got it? This prophet cries out about the lack of justice in his world. Specifically, Habakkuk is horrified about what's happening in Judah, his, his home country. But the lesson applies to all the seeming injustice that plagues every single age of humanity. Just consider our times, okay? People mistreated because of skin color. The, the horror of human trafficking. The, the exploitation of workers by companies. The, the ruining of corporations by workers. The murdering of unborn babies, etc., etc., ad infinitum, ad nauseum. When we see these kinds of unjust evil in our countries, we scream to God, when will you set this right? Or at least that's what we should do. That's, that's what Habakkuk did. And God replied. And his answer to the prophet is remarkable. Through five woes, five woes, God exposes the fabric of justice that is woven through life. It's woven through what appears on the surface to be injustice. Yahweh's answer is a little bit like this electron microscope photo. Uh, if, if you look there, you can see what is a very, very solid structure underneath what appears to us to be soft and pliable and malleable. By the way, if you look at the notes in your bulletin, uh, if you're online, we're so glad to be with you, so, so thrilled you're with us, and, uh, and your host should have told you, given you a link where you can get the notes. If you guys will open them up, you'll see that title in there. God exposes the underlying fabric of justice beyond what we perceive. He does this by describing five great woes, a justice deeper than humans normally can see. First woe is the woe of prideful ambition. Open your Bible, Habakkuk uh, chapter 2, go to Habakkuk chapter 2, we're going to pick it up in verse 4 with the theme. Look, God says, his ego is inflated, he's talking about the Babylonians who are going to overwhelm Judah. He's without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. 
Moreover, wine betrays. An arrogant man is never at rest. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. That's the Hebrew place of the dead, their word for that. And like death, he's never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples to himself. Won't all of these take up a taunt against him with mockery and riddles about him? They will say, woe to him who amasses what is not his, how much longer, and loads himself with goods taken in pledge. Won't your creditors suddenly arise and those who disturb you wake up? Then you will become spoil for them. Since you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who remain will plunder you because of human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. Now, the other woes, there's five of them, the other four woes are exactly three verses each, but this first one includes the introductory idea in verses four and five, which is connected to the theme. And the theme of this woe is prideful ambition. God covers many aspects of selfish, prideful ambition here. First, the vast majority, you know this, right? The vast majority of humanity is prideful. Even those who think we aren't prideful are prideful the vast majority of the time. Verse four nails it. People live exactly opposite of what we should. By God's grace, look at the end of verse 4. By God's grace, human beings can be made righteous. They can be justified by trusting God. In their faith, the righteous live. However, most people are too foolish to take that blessing. So, when a person won't admit her need for salvation beyond herself, her ego is inflated. You see that in verse 4? Her, her life is based on a lie. It's without integrity. Then, and, and this is very intricate, that self-centered pride itself betrays the person. That's verse 5. God, God's showing us how life works. The prideful person thinks he has to supply his own everything, his own salvation. So what does he do? He develops an enormous appetite. Nothing's ever enough. There's a, there's a continual need that drives this person for more and more. I'm certain you've seen this, right? We, we are pridefully ambitious in our career goals, um, in the way we drive our children and, and even in our technology, take the typical modern techno fool, okay? His phone is always outdated. Have you noticed that? It's never, it's just not good enough. He needs the newest one, right? And then how long does that last? Until just before there's another new one, right? And then he needs that one so badly. It's not good enough. And, and until finally, the, 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 the poor fool is broke. Specifically, in verse 5, God looks at the famous Babylonian affection for wine, and, and he predicts that their own appetite for wine is going to enslave them. Haven't seen that in the pandemic, have we? The Babylonians, by the way, loved beer. They loved beer. They ambitiously collected wines from all over the world. It was part of their greed. They thought it was what made them fancy. But that very greed is going to trap them. Look, look up here. When this was spoken, a, a little before 600 B.C., the Babylonians appear to have everything going their way. They, they have decided that their salvation is in their military might and their political organization, and they were very good organizers. They're swallowing up countries like death. No one escapes. Now, that pride leads to an appetite that gives birth to greed. The, the ones who just have to have more are now taking what isn't even theirs. And these 6th century B.C. nations are wondering, is there no justice? Will these dominating, prideful, greedy jerks be allowed to conquer forever? God says no, because the seeds of their own destruction are sown within the Chaldean rice. That's why verse 6 predicts, look, verse 6 predicts the mashal will be sung over fallen Babylon. What we translate taunt or, or taunt song is the Hebrew mashal. Mashals are sing-song rhythms that teach a moral lesson. These are, the, these are the oompa loompas of the Hebrew world, okay? 
Oompa loompa loompity dee. Babylon is going to get it in the knee. So that, that, that's, what, that's what this is saying. God exposes how all the peoples of the world are going to sing a mashal over Babylon because she has made herself wealthy through prideful ambition, which inevitably, you know this, right? Prideful ambition inevitably leads to overextension. And overextension inevitably leads to failure. In this case, God exposes the failure, and it contains a strong moral lesson for us. Just ask anybody who, who bought stock on margins during a, uh, during a stock bubble. They'll tell you. In fact, during the, during the most recent stock wave, uh, Rachel Ensign wrote this really insightful story. She said, um, what color Lambo are you buying? Chris Garcia texted his friends Mike Norkin and Alex Ela, joking about market riches delivering six-figure Lamborghini sports cars. By the beginning of the year, all three friends were amplifying their bets using margin loans. That's money they borrowed from Robinhood to buy more securities. Over eight months, Mr. Ela, who was 30, poured his savings and big chunks of his pay into the market, about $30,000 in all. Mr. Norkin, who has three young children, pictured here, nice family, he invested a similar amount. Mr. Garcia, a new father, funded his account with $4,500 in savings and pandemic stimulus checks. It seemed like, Rachel writes, they couldn't lose. Close quote. Now, you all know what happened. What happened? They lost. When the stock dropped, they had to pay those loans. By the time they got out, these three men had cumulatively lost about one-third of their initial investment. Now, the point isn't to pick on these guys. These are actually nice men trying to work hard. The lesson is woe awaits those who base their lives, their success, even their salvation on prideful ambition. It always leads to overextension and loss. And woe for false security. Look at verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who dishonestly makes wealth for his house to place his nest on high to escape the grasp of disaster. You've planned shame for your house by wiping out many peoples and sinning against your own self. For the stones will cry out from the wall and the rafters will answer them from the woodwork. The, the same means by which the Babylonians achieve their supposed security, that's going to be their undoing. Babylon's whole security system is going to turn on them, something God beautifully and poetically depicts as stones and rafters speaking against them. You know, you know uh, that Babylon built great palaces, the great wonder, one of the wonders of the world. They worked very hard to establish their own security, and it's all going to turn on them in God's time. In fact, though the text is, is obviously metaphorical here, the walls will literally speak against Babylon. Here's what happened. More than 70 years after this conversation between God and Habakkuk, the last Babylonian emperor, Belshazzar, he was having a feast. And it was a, it was a particularly wicked, awful feast. They, they, it, it, was a, it was a real macho thing. They were trying to pretend and fire themselves up to pretend that the, the Persian and Mede army was not outside the gates of the city of Babylon. So they had debauchery and all kinds of nastiness, idolatry, blasphemy, um, and, and they were just going wild with their party until a hand appeared on a wall and wrote, and, and this is my rough translation, uh, Babylon is toast, okay? That's, that's what he said. So in a sense, the walls actually did cry out. What Babylon relied on turned against them and announced the end of the party. The false party is over. I trust you realize that such is true of each and every single thing upon which people depend. If it is not God in whom you are secure, then the thing you're trusting will turn on you. Everything but God will let you down. 
Now, the things upon which we depend may appear secure to us, but in reality, they're about as much use as this homemade safety mask. Look at this poor guy. Let me just tell you, in case you don't know, a plastic bag wrapped around your face will literally kill you. Now, we, we are in shock and, and, and laugh at this poor guy, but that's us. You see, that is all of our self-securing nonsense. That is exactly what that looks like to God. It'll kill you. See how these woes work? There's a very deep discussion where God uses the word woe as a declaration of the justice that is woven in for everything that is wrong. The right side of our notes tell us the next woe is woe for violence. Um, Look at verse 12 through 14. Woe for violence. Go to verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with injustice. Is it not from the Lord of armies that the people's labor only to fuel the fire and countries exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. I've got a question for you. Ready? question is, what do rape, abortion, child abuse, robbery, slavery, manipulative contracts, and confiscatory taxation, what do they all have in common? Answer, they are all attempts to establish something you want through the unjust treatment of other people. Babylon is an empire built on that kind of unjust treatment. Woe to such because they are toast. And and, and by the way, I mean toast literally this time. Uh, Look at verse 13. I want to read it in a different translation. You'll see. Be be sure of this. The Lord who commands armies has decreed. The nation's efforts will go up in smoke. See, toast, right? Their exhausting work will be for nothing. All this work that human beings expend building kingdoms based on violence, it just becomes fuel for God's coming fire. There is no reward for that which is built on injustice. It all gets burned up. Now, don't misunderstand. It's obvious from the rest of the Bible God is not against just war. Nor is God saying that violence is always uncalled for. Sometimes it's the right response. God is saying that nothing of lasting good comes out of trying to establish myself by harming somebody else. Now, there's a really cool construct in our passage. Five woes, right? Five woes. And this whole thing is pretty heavy. This is, this is serious, convicting stuff. But right here, in verse 14, smack dab in the very middle of these woes, Yahweh breathes out some remarkably fresh air. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. Just about the time we're ready to give up. I mean, the, this wretched journey, oh, life is horrible. The Lord reminds us all these things are going to be dealt with completely and permanently. One day the Messiah will establish his perfect universal kingdom and all will be well. All God's people said. When I was a kid, there was an area of Choctaw County, Oklahoma. It comprised some yucky, pretty muddy real estate. It was, it was always prone to flooding. It couldn't be farmed. It wasn't pretty. Uh, and then in 1974, the Army Corps of Engineers built a dam right across the, the main river and all the little creeks that, that flooded this area. That dam controlled the flooding and it created Hugo Lake. And, and today, Lake Hugo is an absolutely beautiful place. All that dirty mess is completely covered up and cleansed by the waters. It's great fishing, uh, great skiing, uh, beautiful homes are all around the shore of this place, and the muck is drowned by the beauty. That is what God means when he's discussing how everybody will know Messiah's glory. There are many other passages promise this. It's a really refreshing reminder. Now, let's read the next section, our next woe, verse 15. Woe to him who gives his neighbors drink, pouring out your wrath, and even making them drunk in order to look at their nakedness. 
you will be filled with disgrace instead of glory. You also drink. Expose your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will cover your glory. For your violence against Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of animals will terrify you because of your human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, and all who live in them. Woe for bullying. The Babylonians are bullies. They make people drunk in order to laugh at them. They are venomous in their treatment of peoples. Um, I read a great book not too long ago on the Mongols. They're the only people group I can find in history that, that matched the Babylonians in this trait. They both really liked to make fun of their enemies. You know, the Mongols would tease a trapped foe and then, and then slaughter them once they were done with their fun. They were basically cats, okay? So, um, sorry, cat people, cats are wonderful. Um, Here's an example of the Mongols. 1241, the Danube River, which is very fast water and very wide and hardly ever freezes over. 1241, the winter was so cold, the Danube froze over hard. And that allowed the golden horde of the Mongols, uh, Batu Khan, allowed them to come in. And they went into Europe and absolutely with ease plundered uh, Hungary, Poland, Bulgaria, Transylvania. And, and, and here's what they did. After they had conquered and burned everything in sight... Okay, the Mongols then took thousands of, they, they rounded all the peoples up and put them in these refugee camps, and they would cull out thousands of them at a time and slaughter them. When they got tired of that, here's what, here's what the Golden Horde Mongols did. They posted signs in all the refugee camps that said, okay, we're done, everybody can go back to their own home city, you can go back to your own town. And the people started leaving. And the Mongols waited until the peoples were a couple of miles away from the refugee camp, and then they got on their horses and hunted them down for sport. Okay? That, that horrible MO, that is what many conquering armies are like. And it is certainly true of the Babylonians that God is going to use in his coming purge of Judah. When he talks about Lebanon there, do you know the Babylonians were the ones who denuded the cedar forests of Lebanon? This amazing thing that had been for centuries, a wonder of the world, a natural wonder, they, they denuded it, never recovered. They slaughtered animals. They treated people as animals. So woe to those bullies. The Lord has built in justice so that indeed what goes around comes around. Here's what happens. The Babylonian Empire rebelled against their overlords. They, they, they rebelled against the people to whom they paid tribute, the Assyrians, and then within one generation, what's going to happen to Babylon? The same thing's going to occur to them. The Medes and the Persians who pay tribute to Babylon are going to rise up and destroy it. It's what bullies do. Look, bullies usurp authority, and they always think they are building lasting empires. But it never lasts. What goes around comes around. They're always destroyed in God's justice. This is what always occurs, and it usually occurs within one generation. For, for example, that Mongol river, uh, the Mongol army that crossed the river to go in and, and terrorize Europe. 21 years after those events I told you about, the Mongols, and for reasons we don't totally understand, uh, we have some speculation, but they, they, they turned and went back east. They went back toward their, their home steps, and, uh, and they were crossing another frozen river when suddenly it collapsed unexpectedly, and nearly all of that army died. Think, think of the bullies in your life, the people who belittle you, scare you, use terror tactics to get their way. Are you frightened of them? It's, it's understandable if you are. Bullies are scary. That, that's why you and I can get frightened of the, of the great bullies of our day. The, the, the terrorists, the intrusive governments, the cancel culture, mean-spirited Christians, these groups are scary.
But David showed us how to handle such bullies, right? You calmly stand up to them. What's the worst they can do? Kill you. Since you know Jesus is Savior, that's not bad, right? You go to heaven. And you know from the Bible that what goes around will come around. You know that every one of those giants is going to fall, so you might as well stand. Who knows? It might be your sling that brings them crashing down. Either way, their woe is sure no matter what things look like to you right now. God uses some marvelous poetry to expose how he has worked this kind of retribution into the very soil of the earth. Look at the end of verse 17. Because of your human bloodshed and violence against land, cities, all who live in them. That's exact parallel with what we already saw mentioned in in verse 12. And and, and the the phraseology is repeated, so we'll emphasize the point. The land itself, the, the soil, the inanimate towns, all the living things in them, they are all together crying out with a basic moral cry that justice must be done. Bullying will not, cannot be tolerated. By the way, side note here, this is one of the strongest arguments, I think, for the truth that you and I were created by a just, perfect, noble, sovereign God. Think this through, think this through. If we were merely evolved bits of primordial slime, wouldn't we just applaud the bullies? I mean, wouldn't we just say, well, their army's stronger, They erected high walls of injustice. Hooray! The species will survive. Right? That would have to be the response if macroevolution were true. But you never hear that. And I'm not talking about modern peoples. Throughout history, you never hear that. People everywhere and always cry for justice. They want the walls to come down. I have listened to evolutionary philosophers try to dance around this one, and they are completely unsuccessful. The very fact that you have an inbuilt sense of justice argues for the biblical statement that you are made in the image of a just God. It's the only thing that makes sense. And by the way, it is inbuilt in your image. Every parent can tell you. Look, from the beginning of each life, the desire for justice is automatic. Have you ever tried to take a toy away from a two-year-old? All right? Justice. Okay, final woe. Woe for idolatry, verses 18 through 20. What use is a carved idol after its craftsman carves it? It's only a cast image, a teacher of lies, for the one who crafts its shape trusts in it and makes idols that cannot speak. I picture him saying it that way. They can't speak. Woe to him who says to wood, wake up. Or to mute stone, come alive. Can it teach? Look, it may be played with gold and silver, yet there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let the whole earth be silent in his presence. There's a wonderful irony here. God is real. But people look at violence and problems and we say, oh, there must not be a God. God fills heaven, his real temple made without human hands, but people prefer fake gods that we can control. Idols are fake. But when humans face hard times, it's very attractive to say, this is my good luck charm. I will trust in it, my precious. Right? God says, woe for such idolatry. You're going to get nothing from it. You, you have exchanged the beauty of being made in the image of God for the ugly lie that you can make God in your image. Now, we sometimes think idolatry is only like that. It's only tangible idol statues. But we must always Always beware of our incredible capacity to turn anything, even positive good things, into idols. Here's a quick example. You. You. You are wonderful. 
God crafted you. He loves you more than I can possibly express. You are so valuable that God paid the highest price possible, the life of God the Son, just to give you the chance to, to trust Him and be in His forever family. Isn't that awesome? And yet, instead of turning to God in wonder and gratitude, what do we do? We worship self. Have it your way. You owe it to yourself. You deserve, right? That's what we do. Now look over all these woes again. Look at the five woes. What do they teach you? Why, why did God share this convoluted data about the things he's built into the fabric of justice? Because the woes answer the three great questions. Remember the, remember the three great questions? Is God God? Is he at work? Is God working good? Yes, yes, yes. Built into the fabric of God's justice are judgments, judgments on prideful ambition, false security, violence, bullying, idolatry. God, God has woven justice into the very fabric of life. By the way, that's the conclusion you'll see in your notes. The woes expose the Lord as God, and he's working good. Uh, Reagan Rogers is a local high school senior. She spoke to Habakkuk's conclusion in a recent article she wrote. I really liked it. I thought she did a great job. Um, in fact, I liked it so much you'll see it in your, in your notes. Reagan says this, Habakkuk was in a situation very similar to my own. His homeland was in a state of unprecedented crisis, and he was crying out to God in confusion and frustration and grief. He wanted answers, and, and more importantly, he wanted God to deliver his goodness into Habakkuk's life, but only if God's plan aligned with his own. Eventually, Habakkuk came around, and Reagan says, so did I. Through God's patience and grace, we both came to a very important conclusion, one that all must come to if we want to find peace in this world. Sometimes, the reality of God's goodness doesn't perfectly fit into our idea of goodness, and that's okay. In fact, it's fantastic because the goodness God has in store for his children is infinitely more wonderful than anything we could conceive on our own, close quote. All God's people said, you know, when you realize that God is God and that he works good, it, it changes you. It certainly changed Habakkuk. Habakkuk, having, having glimpsed this unwavering but formerly unnoticed reality, he is rattled into change. Read the last verses we'll read today, uh, chapter 3, 1 and 2. A prayer of the prophet Habakkuk, according to Shigonat. Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. Shigonat, do you see that one? That's a strange term. Now, it's almost surely a musical notation, but it's a little tough for us to tell because this word is only used one other place in all Semitic literature, and that's Psalm 7. Now, it comes from an old word that we do understand very clearly. The old word that it comes from, which it surely maintains this meaning to some degree, the old word it comes from is something that rattles to and fro and then settles, like, like that. Can you, could you hear that? Did I get close enough? That's uh, Stalin, apparently. I grabbed the Stalin coin. How exciting. Um, <laughs> The joys of going to the Soviet Union before it fell. Um, th this, this is Shigonat, um, rattling, rattling, and then gravity pulls it down, okay? That's very, very telling. Habakkuk's been rattled, and now he rattles and settles in to the gravity of God's sovereignty. 
I know, that, that brings up the question that you're asking in your, uh, in your Mongol imitation. How do you know Habakkuk has changed? Great question. Thank you for asking. Um, here's how we know Habakkuk changes. He now prays about the need for all of God, for justice and mercy. That's what's going on in verse 2. What everyone needs is God. We face crises and we keep asking why and how and, and when questions, all of which is great. God wants us to engage with him about those things. But the answer is who? It's not why, how. It's who. Who the, Lord, the world needs is the Lord. And God is both merciful and just. He combines, he combines these traits that in humans seem to be forever in conflict. God combines mercy and wrath. We were talking about this and trying to, to understand it, and a member of our pulpit team uh, wrote me this real big dog lover on our pulpit team, said, Wayne, I think God's character is like a crossbreed between a Doberman pincher named Wrath and a, a King Charles Cavalier Spaniel uh, named Mercy. And, and by the way, that's real cross. <laughs> Horrifying. Anyway, um, <laughs> the progression here is very typical. Look at Habakkuk. Habakkuk again by crying out for what? What did he cry for? We want what? Justice. And when did he want it? Now, we want justice. We want it now. He sounded just like your fourth grader who gets cheated out of a letter grade on a test, right? It's the biggest injustice. You know who he sounds like? He sounds like me when I'm playing Mario Kart and some little kid from Brazil uses a cheat code and zips in front of me at the last minute after I beat his bottom the whole race and I scream out, God, why is there not justice on this child? Right? Would it spoil some vast eternal plan? And God answers with the woes. And Habakkuk realizes, what we all realize, it actually would spoil some vast eternal plan. God has already worked out justice in everything. That's when it dawns on the prophet like it does on me. If we only have God's justice, there's no hope. The Bible and the mirror are equally clear. We are not holy or perfect. We deserve nothing from a perfect God. That's why we need His mercy along with His wrath. When, when good, think about good parents. When, when your kiddo comes to you demanding wrathful justice, right, what do you do? You walk them through the woes until they realize that they want mercy. So the kid comes and, and complains to you about, about his sister, and you listen, and you say, okay, um, if you think your sister deserves the wrath of a spanking for what she did to you, let me, let, me just, let me just do this. Let's go back to what you did an hour ago because you didn't think we saw it, but we saw it. And let's talk through what you did. Suddenly, what does that kid want? Hey, I'd like to talk about mercy. Right? There's a whole, there's a whole change happens there. The woes do their job, right? The kid says, let's talk mercy, not just justice. By the way, if you want more on this, I don't think anybody ever wrote about this better than the great theologian John Calvin. Unfortunately, he's so long-winded I couldn't grab any bites to use with you, but you can read it on your own. Habakkuk prays both. He wisely grasps the import of, of, of justice, of wrath, and mercy. Uh, John Piper is a modern-day Habakkuk. He, he I think understands this well. Look at his summary. It is God's supreme commitment, Piper says, to uphold and display the full range of his glory through, through the sovereign demonstration of all his perfections, including wrath, which is a perfection of God, and mercy. Close quote. Habakkuk realizes that. Habakkuk realizes that when he's been calling out for justice, what he really needed was to be rattled to where he changed, right? And Stalin falls off the table. 
This, this prayer is God's finger smacking Habakkuk down to where he's really going to think and understand. That's, that's powerful. Habakkuk realizes that he's changed. He also prays for the renewal for everybody that is found in, in God's sovereignty. What, what he's saying here is he wants people in his day to realize what an awesome thing, what he's realized, that God is indeed sovereign. He's learned the refreshment that comes from knowing that God is fully God and he's working good and he wants everybody to experience this. Uh, I sometimes speak at a wonderful camp called T-Bar M. And they have, a, they have a really neat tradition there to get the room quiet. Uh, the leader says, God is good, and the people call out all the time. And then they turn it around, and the leader says, all the time, and the people say, God is good. All right? But I think, all respect to T-Bar-M, I think, I think we can improve on that just a little. If we really want to capture Habakkuk, this is, this is what we say. We say, God is God, and God works good. All right? Okay, I'll say, God is God, you say, God works good, and then we'll flip it. Ready? God is God. God works good. God is God. Amen. Now, when you really understand that, when you really understand God is almighty God and he works almighty good, it renews you, it, it rattles you, it settles you, it changes you. Here's, here's how an old sailor put it to me one time. He said, Wayne, suffering adds important ballast. Let me explain what he meant. Sailboats are remarkable things. Um, even if they flip over in a storm, they, they right themselves. It is almost unthinkable for a modern sailboat to stay capsized in the sea. Doesn't matter how heavy the weather is, as long as one condition is met, it will always right itself. There must be more weight below the waterline than above it. To sailors, by the way, weight below the waterline is called ballast. Uh, often, weight above the waterline is called dead weight. What every boat needs is more weight below the water because that ballast stabilizes the ship. In this stormy life, we are all like sailboats. And if we have weight in the depth of our lives, we cannot be capsized even by the stormiest seas. Habakkuk adds ballast when he engages with God and thinks through the woes. How about you and me? God sends storms in life. And in those storms, we find out whether we are deeply secure in his depth or if we're sailing with a lot of dead weight up on our deck. And frankly, most lives, I'm not trying to be ugly here, just be honest, most lives I see today are very top-heavy. They're consumed with immediacy and, and brass and flash and popularity. They lack the real ballast of a real dialogue with God. They're not prepared for the storms. My hope for each of us is we will add the awesome fear of God, his justice and his mercy as our ballast, just like Habakkuk did. Let's pray about that together. Let's pray. Father, I pray for, um, I pray for myself and, and, and with my brethren. I, we ask you to use the woes right now to expose where we have dead weight. What, what's our prideful ambition? It's so funny, the answer to selfish ambition is not no ambition. <laughs> it's to get rid of the selfishness. Father, where am I overextending rather than resting in your gravity? What about false security? Lord, please expose for us the things that we are trusting that we are building, maybe may very good things, but anything we rely on for security other than you will fail. In fact, it's an unfair burden that we put on it. How about violence? 
Where, where am I violent? Parenting is especially prone to violence and bullying. Just to get a moment of peace. Lord, show me how that exposes my top-heavy lack of depth. And let me find... Let me find ballast in you instead of in my need to control a situation. How about idolatry, Lord? What, what, am I, what am I valuing? That's the way I can find out. What's the... <laughs> the things I'm valuing are worth about as much as this Soviet coin, which is absolutely worthless. Wasn't worth a whole lot when it was worth something. It's definitely worthless now. I pray you press down on me and my brothers and sisters too so that we can let go our idolatry. Rattle us to change. Renew us in your sovereignty. It is the most, it is the most tragically misunderstood and underappreciated aspect of you probably in our day. Let us find incredible peace in your sovereignty. And Lord, let us seek justice and mercy. Golly, I hear so many voices crying out for justice today, and, and they're, they're so close to being right, but they're so often wrong. What they really want is mercy, and they're calling it justice, and so they lose both. And I pray we can, we can show the way in justice and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.